and the cross. And the reason, the reason we're doing this is because um, I, I, one of the privileges, honors that I have uh, as, a, as a church planter is I get to, I get to spend time uh, with a lot of non-Christians talking about religious things. Um, and we talk about the cross, we talk about Christianity, we talk about the gospel, we talk about the Bible. They have lots of questions about religious things. They have lots of objections to Christianity. And one of the big ones that people have, a pro- have, a, have an issue with is actually the cross itself because they look at this crucifixion thing, this Jesus dying on the cross for sinners thing, and they think, well, man, that is like kind of an old, ancient, barbaric kind of practice. And, I, and, and how in the world can we modern people still believe in that? What's the point of believing in that? And what we've been trying to do over the last number of, of weeks is trying to show how the crucifixion of Jesus is, is not actually barbaric, but is actually profoundly beautiful because it solves problems with humanity that cannot be solved any other way and by any other means. And so we've been looking at uh, different what you could call aspects or theories, you could say, of uh, of the cross. And uh, today what we're going to do is we're going to look at this one called Christus Victor, which is just Latin, right, for victory of Christ. That's the name uh, that you can see on the front of your bulletin. And by the way, there is an outline in the bulletin if you want to follow along. And also, we hope to have opportunity for questions at, at, at the end of the sermon, uh, for questions for clarification, that kind of thing. So if you, if you have questions, write them down, be prepared to ask them. Uh, my phone number is in the bulletin if you want to text those questions to me, uh, but you're also able to raise your hand and ask questions as well. Now, now, I, the one caveat is, just because you can ask doesn't mean that I will always be able to answer. Uh, I will try my best, but I am not an oracle, and I am not a genius. I am just a man. So, be gentle with me. Anyhow, uh, here we go. We're going to talk about uh, this idea of Christus Victor. There's an old confession of the church that says that when, when Jesus died on the cross, one of the things he did was he set me free from the tyranny of the devil. And what that means is what Paul describes here in verse 15 of the passage that Ashley read for us just a minute ago. It says there that having disarmed the powers and authorities, says that Jesus somehow disarmed the powers and the authorities. Jesus somehow triumphed over the devil. It says that triumphing over them by the cross. And it's referring to the devil and to the demonic realm, etc., well, what in the world is that all about? Well, we're going to look at three aspects, and you can see them in your bulletin there in the outline. We're going to look at how Paul is describing a supernatural evil and the existence of supernatural evil. We're going to talk about the power and weapon of Satan, and hopefully we'll also talk about the victory of Jesus, but very profound, and it's this. The Bible teaches, and Paul assumes here in his teaching, that there is a transcendent dimension to evil. There is a supernatural element to the existence of evil. There is more to evil than just the human realm and human interaction and just sort of the the natural world. And we need to know that, the Bible says, or we will 
necessarily be defeated by it. There is evil in us, and we call that sin. There is evil around us, and we call that corruption. And so when I say natural evil, I'm talking about the kinds of natural disasters that happen in the world that, that, uh, that we, none of us would look at and, and, and celebrate, of course. And then there's also evil, you could say, above us. There is a, a demonic realm, and that, that demonic realm has real power, it has real influence, and it is really personal. And what I mean by really personal is, is that Satan is a personal being. Satan is not like sort of one half of the force. You know, in, in Star Wars, you have the force and, and you can use the force for good or you could use it for evil. And if you're able to manipulate the force, then, then you can use it to your advantage. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that, that, that Satan is a personal being. He has a personality. He has a, a consciousness. He is like you and I in that respect, Except, because he is a fallen angel, he is far more powerful than you and I. Now, someone famous once said, there's two equal dangers that we can fall into. One is, we can ignore the devil. The other is, is we can be too obsessed with the devil. Probably in the West, in our culture, anyway, our biggest problem is that we ignore the devil. In the West, we don't believe in a spiritual, supernatural realm. We only believe kind of in the physical, material world that we see around us. And so what we necessarily do when we deal with the question of evil, because we, we tend to believe that there's just a physical world around us and no spiritual, supernatural realm behind it all, is we tend to be reductionistic about the sources of evil. So, for example, and I'm speaking of, uh, of kind of personal individual evil, we would, we would reduce it to basically the physical. We would say that, that uh, evil is really just the result of um, uh, chemical imbalances in the brain, and if we can properly medicate a person and correct those chemical imbalances, we could somehow overcome the evil. Or we say that it is primarily social and so it's the result of economic in inequalities, for example, or uh, a lack of uh, proper education. And so if we correct those things, if we bring more equity of opportunity, at least in, in the economic realm or even distribution, according to some philosophies, or if we, uh, if we provide better education for people, we can kind of educate our way out of the evil that we suffer from. And then, of course, there's, there's just reducing it to kind of the relational and saying, you know, uh, you, you, someone may be evil and practice evil because they were abused and they had a terrible upbringing or, or something like that. Now, here's the thing. Each one of those descriptions is somewhat true. So there is a social element to the evil that that we suffer in this world. There is a physical element to the evil that we experience in this room, in this world. There is a relational element to the evil that people uh, perpetuate in this world. It's true, but, it, but that's not all there is to it. And not a single one of these explanations is able to 
explain away the extent of the evil that we have witnessed in the world around us, nor does it give us the resources to actually finally deal and overcome with the evil that we experience in the world around us. Now, let me just give you two quick examples. First of all, W.H. Auden. Are you familiar with W.H. Auden? He was a British poet around the turn of the 20th century, a brilliant man. He was what you would call, we don't really have these as much anymore, uh, but he was called a public intellectual. Okay, so people, he, 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 was, he was well respected and uh, people looked to him for, uh, for insight into human nature and, and into society and that kind of thing. And he, uh, he actually was an atheist for many, many years who believed that the world was actually advancing and progressing towards uh, a better and better world all, all the time, okay? And during World War II, he was actually living in New York City, and uh, he was living in a German kind of part of town, and he went to a movie theater along with lots of other people to get the news, because that's how you got the news back then. You went to the movie theater, and before the film showed, they would have these newsreels uh, giving you images of what was happening in the news around the world. And he was horrified when he sat down in this movie theater and he was watching the newsreel happening and it was, it was a newsreel about how the Nazis were in Poland and were, were putting to death uh, Polish people, Polish Jews en masse and they were killing civilians and all this kind of stuff. And what absolutely horrified W.H. Uh, Auden was that the largely German crowd that he was sitting among was cheering Could you believe that? They were actually cheering the German soldiers as they were bayoneting uh, civilian Jewish Poles uh, in in the name of the Third Reich. And for for W.H. Auden, who had put so much hope and so much faith in the human capacity for love, like we actually heard about in the prayer, you know, the, the capacity for love, the ability to love, he had put so much faith in actually the human capacity to love, not the divine capacity to love. He had put faith in the human capacity of love, and then he had seen and witnessed the, 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 these events, and it, it, utterly, it utterly dismantled his atheism. Not because he said there has to be a God, and this is so fascinating, so many people have turned to the Holocaust and they have said there can't be a God because of the Holocaust. W.H. Auden said there has to be a God because of the Holocaust. Because he said there has to be an evil that, that somehow empowers human evil, kind of like in Lord of the Rings. In Lord of the Rings, you've got the one ring. That one ring, it it empowers the possessor and gives them supernatural power to, 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 to be more evil than they had the capacity to be on their own. That's the one example. Well, I guess I just gave you two quickly, but you know what I mean. The second one is actually a guy named uh, H.G. Wells. Some of you may have heard of his name. He was a science fiction writer, another British guy. British people, they're smart people, I guess, eh? And uh, he wrote, you know, he wrote The Invisible Man, he wrote uh, War of the Worlds, these, these very famous, well-known books. And before World War II, in a book called A Short History of the World, in 1937, this is what H.G. Wells wrote, can we doubt that presently our race will more than realize our boldest imaginations, that it will achieve unity and peace, and that our children will live in a world made more splendid and lovely than any place or garden that we know? Going on from strength to strength in an ever-widening circle of achievement. What man has done, 
The little triumphs of his present state form but the prelude to the things that man has yet to do. Sounds pretty triumphalistic, doesn't it? Sounds like, man, human beings rock, and we're, we're just killing it, and it's going to, like, in a good way, and we're going to really do even better. Then in 1946, World War II happens, and in 1946, in, a, in an essay called A Mind at the End of Its Tether, H.G. Wells wrote this, the cold-blooded massacres of the defenseless, the return of deliberate and organized torture, mental torment, and fear to a world from which such things had seemed well-nigh banished has come near to breaking my spirit altogether. Homo sapiens, as he has been pleased to call himself, is played out. When he was struck by real evil, his worldview actually couldn't account for it. If you don't understand that there is a supernatural develop, uh, dimension to evil, you will have a hard time accounting for, for the human propensity and ability to perpetuate extremely horrific things. And you know, by the way, what I find so fascinating is people... A lot of people are willing to concede that there's a God. Like they say, I believe in a God. I believe in something out there. Some good, benign spirit or being that sort of kicked off this universe. But they don't want to believe in the possibility that there is a personal source, so to speak, of evil. Why not? And don't forget, you know, if you want to... Uh, understand Jesus, you have to understand his belief in the devil because he, he spoke very, very uh, sincerely about the devil and about his power and about his role in coming to, have de to defeat the devil. So if you think that it's primitive to believe in evil, you have to think that Jesus was primitive. And most reasonable people, though they may disagree with Jesus and what he taught, would not call his thinking primitive. They would call his thinking profound. They would call his teaching remarkable on a level with Plato or Aristotle or some of the other great uh, uh, thinkers and leaders in the history of the world. So that's the first thing, that there, there is a supernatural source uh, of evil. But the second thing is, is what is, this, what is the devil's power? What is his weapon? Does he just sort of make people do evil? You know, remember Family Circle? I used to, I used to love that cartoon, Family Circle. And uh, the, the kids, they would do something wrong, and then their parents would say, now what happened here? And, and they would say, oh, the devil made me do it. And then there was this like little ghost. No, I mean, the Bible does tell stories of demon possession, so I'm not saying that that never happens at all. But, but you got to remember, Satan is actually a very, very smart being. And if he just simply worked very directly that way, so to speak, uh, we would get on to his, his methods pretty quickly, don't you think? Don't we would kind of figure out, ah, so that's what he does, is he possesses people and makes them do evil. He's far more subtle than that. And as our text indicates, the, the subtle means that the devil uses to, to wield his weapons among us is right there in verse 15, or sorry, verse 14, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, he, that is Jesus, took it away, 
nailing it to the cross. Now, what's going on here? Paul is saying that the devil uses the law. What's the law? The law is God's code for living, his code of ethics of how he wants his created beings to live. And when we sin, we break that code and and we break God's law and therefore it's opposed to us. It condemns us. The law stands in judgment against us. Now, what does that have to do with Satan? Well, Satan's power is rooted in our breaking that code, in our committing sin. It's sort of the secret of his strength. You know how, how the secret of Superman's strength is the yellow sun, right? That's where, we all know that, right? That's where he gets his strength. Because he lived in Krypton where they had a red sun, and then he was just a regular guy. But when he came to Canada, <laughs> when he came to Earth, he, he was under our yellow sun, and that gave him profound strength. Well, Satan's strength comes from our sinfulness. Because we sin, Satan has this power to wield a great weapon, and his weapon is accusation. Now, that may not seem like much to you at first, but let me, let me unpack this for you. In fact, the name, his name actually means accuser. See, what Satan does is he goes before God's throne room and he accuses us before God himself. Picture, picture a courtroom scene, okay? And God is on the bench and you are in what's called the dock, right? This is where the prisoner sits and, and Satan is this prosecuting attorney, okay? And, and he starts to reveal all your sins. He starts to recount them. He, pulls, he unrolls this scroll and the scroll, like, like when he lets it go, it hits the floor and it keeps unrolling for like miles, And on it, he's listed every single time you have told a fib, you have lied, you have harbored anger or hatred toward another person, you have been greedy. The list goes on and on and on. And he begins to recount them all. He's done this, he's done this, she's done this, she's done this. Reaves them all and says, this law-breaking deserves death. That's the penalty. That's justice. God, you are a just God. You must punish them with death. Now listen, you don't have to look around the world very long to discover that the human race is driven by the fear of death and driven by guilt. Ernest Becker, who wrote a very important book about 50 years ago called The Denial of Death. He wrote, and he was an atheist, by the way, he wrote, the idea of death, the fear of it, haunts the human animal like nothing else. And the novelist Philip Roth, who in a book, in one of his books, wrote, in every calm and reasonable person, there is hidden a second person scared witless about death. And so we do everything in our power to try to prevent it, right? Like we, we eat kale with a smile and say, I love this stuff. Um, we, we, we get up at 6 a.m. and we go for a jog and we say, this is great. What a way to start the day. We slap sunscreen all over our bodies before we go out on a beautiful day like today. And we, that stuff is gross, right? Like who likes putting on sunscreen? We do all these things in an attempt to try to to push back, hold back death. This is just the tip of the iceberg, and and we are driven by guilt. We, We do all kinds of stuff because of the guilt we can't escape. 
you know, there are people who, who can't leave bad relationships because of guilt. Their reason tells them that the right thing to do would be to walk away, but their guilt keeps them trapped. You probably are thinking of someone right now who fits that description. There are people who can't say no ever because of guilt. Pastors love these people because there's a lot of things they need to get them to do in church. So they, okay, who's got a really guilty conscience? Can you do this for me? Okay, right? I mean, that's a, that's a bit of a joke, but, but look, it, it gets serious. There are people who are, who are caught in a cycle of addictions because of uh, their guilt, and it's destroying their lives. And just on a small level, don't you ever notice that when you're feeling guilty, you're, you're edgy, you can be resentful, you can be, you can be kind of like short with your spouse or with your kids or with your friends or, or, or with uh, your coworkers, you just, because it's gnawing at you. It's like that pebble in the shoe. You ever go for a walk with a pebble in the shoe and, and every time you take a step, it goes ding and it, and it annoys you like crazy. But, you know, you don't want to unlace your hiking boots and all that kind of stuff to take the pebble. So you, we're almost done the hike. So you try to ignore it and you keep on going. And, then, and it's just, it, it never goes away and you never get used to it. That's guilt. And Satan, he has this power over us, okay? Because he rubs that guilt in your face and he, he creates in you that fear of death. For some of us, he, he does it to the point of despair where we, we think we can't go on. We have been hearing him recount to us over and over and over again all the ways we failed, all the ways we've fallen short, all the ways we don't deserve kindness or grace or mercy or whatever. And, and we despair of any opportunity to experience any joy or relief from this. And we fear judgment. If there's a judge on the other side, we think... I don't have a hope to stand against him. And so this is the way that, that Satan keeps us enslaved. This is the way he controls us. This is the way he drives us. He whispers into our ear. He says, I, this is a little bit going back to last week, right? He whispers in your ear and he says, you know, you don't deserve God's grace. You don't deserve his kindness. I'll take care of you though. Not, not in a way where he's, he's actually Satan. He's, he's disguising himself under the guise of something else. I'm your money, I'll take care of you. I'm your spouse, I'll take care of you. I'm your reputation, I'll take care of you. Put your hope and your trust in me and you'll be okay. But if you try to stand before God, your guilt will condemn you and I will be there to make sure. Point three, the victory of Jesus. There's hope, Paul says, because Jesus took this power. Look at verse 14 again. It says, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, it says, he took it away. Jesus took it away, nailing it to the cross. He destroyed the work of the devil. That's what John says in 1 John 3. Paul says he disarms these powers. How? He took away Satan's power to accuse us. See, Satan had the law and he had our sins. He put them together. He went before God and he said, get them. And then along came Jesus, who scripture says had no sin, who lived perfectly. 
But then he went to the cross and he died in our place. He died sinlessly, voluntarily for you and for me. The apostle, or not the apostle, John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus walking by, he said to his disciples that were with him, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, Jesus took away Satan's power to accuse. He had nothing to accuse us with anymore. You go into the courtroom again. You're back in the courtroom. And now, because Jesus has lived for you and he has died for you, Satan walks up to the dock and he, he pulls out your scroll. And with such confidence, he unfurls it with a flourish and it rolls across the the floor and he looks down about it and he begins to recount your sins and as he opens his mouth, he goes, "Uh." because it's blank. Or actually, it's not blank, it's stained blood red. But now it's illegible. It's unreadable. Because Jesus took all those sins that you committed and he nailed them to the cross. Satan has no record to read. He has no record to read. But but even more than that, it says in verse 15, it says, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now, this this is a fascinating addition to what Paul is saying. In ancient times, when a king went out and, and conquered an enemy king. He didn't have like embedded CNN reporters who could report from the front and say, look, you know, the king has, has defeated the enemy and isn't that great? No, you didn't have that. In order to prove your victory, what you would do is, is you would take that other king captive and you would take them home with you and you would have a parade. And in that parade, you would disrobe that king, your enemy king. You would strip them bare so that they were made a complete spectacle before your citizens. So they would be cheering as you're coming in with your defeated enemy behind you and they're stripped bare and they would be cheering at what you have done and and, and how you have defeated the enemy. Well, Paul uses this word, he says disarm, and literally that word in the the original language is the word strip. He He says, picture Jesus stripping Satan of his power to accuse. Like in the Wizard of Oz, you know, when, when they come to finally to the end of the Wizard of Oz, and I hope this isn't a spoiler alert, but I mean, it's like, like a 70-year-old movie, so, you know, it's on you if you don't know what happens at the end yet. You know, the great Wizard of Oz, they're coming to see, and then they, Toto sees, sees something happening in this curtain, and they pull back this curtain, and there's this little tiny man. And he's pulling all these levers and speaking into this microphone to be the scary Wizard of Oz, Right? He's discovered for who he truly is. And Jesus, he, in disarming Satan, he, we discover who he really is. He has no power over us. So what's the cash value of that? Well, we all live in the fear of death and with guilt. For, for some of us, it is incredibly acute. You feel hopeless and you are despairing. And you cannot shake the sense that you are reprehensible and disgraceful and in the therapist's chair 
with the counselor trying to help build their self-esteem and telling them, no, you have every reason to think that you're an okay person and you're, you're all right, and that person simply cannot remove from themselves this stain of guilt and this, this sense of shame. But the gospel comes in and Jesus says that, I, I know that you actually, in and of yourself, you are reprehensible. You are sinful. You are not deserving of God's kindness and grace, but I am here to wash you clean, to take it away. And you think down, deep down in yourself, well, come on, but somebody should be paying for the sins that I committed. That's wrong. Like, that's, it's just wrong, and you know that, that it's wrong deep down in yourself. And Jesus says, I agree it's wrong. Somebody should pay, but that someone's me. That someone's me. If that's you, you're the person who needs to, to hold on to this Jesus for the first time. But for the rest of us, those fears still linger within us because we don't hold on to Jesus for good all the time. You have guilt. And you know, when, when the devil convicts you of guilt, what he does is, is he makes your sin look really, really big and he makes Jesus look really, really small. Sometimes you should feel guilty. When you do sinful things, when you do wrong things, you should feel guilty. But when the Holy Spirit convicts you of guilt, here's what the Holy Spirit does is, is he does the opposite of the devil. He turns your gaze away from your sin and on to Jesus Christ because when sin runs deep, Jesus is deeper. Corey Ten Boom once said that that there is no pit so deep, but Christ is deeper still. So, so here's the cash value. You know, everybody likes a how-to. What do I do now? Tell me what to do and I'll go do it. I'm going to tell you what to do. Go do nothing. Sorry, you productive-driven Western <laughs> people. Go do nothing except this. Contemplate the cross of Jesus Christ. Contemplate how he was made powerless, how he was stripped of his royal robes, how he was numbered among the guilty, how he was subjected to death, but how he triumphed in it and through it. He used divine jujitsu. You know what jujitsu is, right? The ancient art of using your enemies strength against themselves to gain victory? Of course you know that. That's what he did. Or to use C.S. Lewis's language, he used the deeper magic. There's this beautiful scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. If you haven't read that book, read that book. Or just keep coming here and you'll have read the book within a year because <laughs> I quote it every couple of weeks. But you read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and of course you know that Aslan, he dies on the stone table, right? But then, amazingly enough, even as Lucy and uh, Susan are weeping uncontrollably over the death of the beautiful lion who they loved, Aslan, they hear the table crack. And then they turn and they look, and Aslan is alive. And they can't understand, how in the world could this happen? And so Aslan explains it to them. He says, though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper, deeper still, which she did not know. 
Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. That's the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you defeated the devil through the sacrificial death of your son Jesus. There is so much mystery around it still that we do not understand, but there is enough for us to hold on to by faith. And so we ask that you will enable us to do that. For every one look at our sin, may we take ten looks at our Savior. And we, may we know that we are saved, that we are free, because Christ is the victor. In his name we pray, amen.